Welcome to the Trailbreaker Podcast. Good afternoon, Bobby, and thank you so much for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. It's awesome to be here. So I'm really excited to talk about the work that you're doing with Savory and a lot of the initiatives that you guys have with, you know, folks here in the United States, as well as globally with the work with your hubs. But I want to first talk about, you know, your background, you know, as a trailbreaker, you've, you've started, you know, back with the you know, bioengineering, is that right? Biomedical engineering, yeah. Okay, talk, talk us a little bit through about, you know, your background starting way back then and then how it has pulled through to your work with Savory. You know, it's it's funny. Like, a lot of people that I, I come across seem to have very disparate backgrounds. Like, we all came from this very different way of life and have arrived, you know, where we are. And I think that's the path that a lot of us take is we don't really know what the hell we're doing when we're younger. You know, you, you go into college at the age of 18 and they're like, declare a major. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. I know exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life, but you really have no idea and you figure it out. Um, so anyways, I was a very um, technical minded, you know, tinkerer, problem solver, and very much into to health and wellness. So, you know, those two things, I, you know, got the thought that biomedical engineering was what I wanted to do. Um, so I majored in that. And for, you know, about eight or 10 years uh, after school, I worked for the Food and Drug Administration. So I um, basically designed clinical trials and reviewed cardiovascular devices to make sure that they were safe before approving them uh, to be sold um, on the market. So, you know, I did that for a while and I thought that's what I wanted to do, but it really didn't light a fire under me. It, it wasn't where my passion was. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like approving, um, an endovascular graft to be sold by, you know, some large multinational corporation is great for them. But in terms of really tipping the scale of helping public health and helping create a, a healthier, more thriving planet for, you know, the planet itself and for, you know, its inhabitants, um, I knew there was more I could do. And, you know, I didn't necessarily know exactly what that was going to be, but my, my personal journey kind of led me towards, um, you know, uh, endurance sports. I was a competitive ultra marathon runner for a number of years. So, you know, I was getting podium finishes at hundred milers and stuff like that. Um, and folks that are watching this might be, you know, like raising an eyebrow and I'll say that was probably a good 30 or 40 pounds ago. Um, back when I was putting in the mileage, things looked a little different. Um, but you know, through the health and wellness and, and endurance, world, I started getting interested in diet and nutrition. 
And from there, I started looking at where my food comes from. And that got me interested in agriculture and started asking those questions. And so I just kept asking, you know, why and where and how and going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And in doing so, I discovered this world of regenerative agriculture, which is really, um, you know, for those that I think are familiar with sustainable agriculture, which is, you know, um, very much in the lexicon um, of, of folks' minds, um, regenerative agriculture is taking that a step further. So sustainability is really maintaining the status quo. And if you look at how food production and land management is being done right now, the status quo isn't good enough. You know, we need to do so much better on the global scale with agriculture and land management. And regenerative agriculture is this whole realm of farmers and ranchers and pastoralists that are working in a way that works with nature instead of against it. And it actually heals nature and allows it to get better over time so that there's a host of co-benefits that come along from it. Um, and, you know- so Let me jump in there real quick. Yeah. So, so I know a lot of the work that Savory Institute does is, is helping folks to transition their existing grasslands and farms, et cetera, to, to this more regenerative agriculture approach. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So Savory Institute basically is a nonprofit working to, to help train and educate and equip the farmers and ranchers that are interested in adopting these methods. And so, you know, for me coming about it from a biomedical engineering perspective, you know, I was like, well, I have no background in, in agriculture like this, this, I don't know how I can get into this space, but like, I can't help but dive deeper into it and read more books about it and, and learn and it's just, I knew that that was the thing because when you look at proper land management at regenerative agriculture, it's, you know, grazing animals in a way that the large herds of bison used to roam across North America or the great wildebeest migration across Africa. You know, there's always used to be these large herds of animals, but, you know, humans kind of messed that up. You know, we domesticated all the livestock. We put up roads and fences and killed off the predators. Like the same type of effect doesn't happen anymore, but there's a way that you can mimic that by planning your grazing and bunching up the animals and moving them around according to an intentional plan. And that's what we do at the Savory Institute is teach people how to do that. And when you do it, you're growing more grass, which is pulling carbon, you know, CO2 out of the atmosphere and creating soil, you know, healthy, vibrant soils and storing water and creating habitat for wildlife and nutritious food. And it just like, it creates this abundant, thriving, resilient ecosystem. And I was just like, oh, wow, that is absolutely incredible. And I need to put my efforts behind that. Yeah. So, you know, in essence, you're regenerating the land through, through, you know, managing the animals and the ecosystems that would already be there, but that we've sort of upset the balance and you're kind of helping it to reset. And, and then thus, you know, the plants, the soil, the water, the health of the animals is all improved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, when you look at things through an evolutionary biology lens, you know, this is the way that grasslands and, and animals and, and humans all co-evolved together. You know, the grasslands co-evolved being grazed. And so they need to continue to be grazed. That's what stimulates regrowth of new grasses. And it keeps the cycle of life going. And, you know, we've kind of messed things up with, you know, the industrial revolution over the last, you know, hundred plus years, but there is a way to reincorporate those lessons of, of how, you know, uh, we co-evolved with these grasslands and put that into play in a modern context. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I want to get into this a little bit more in terms of, you know, 
who you work with, how you work with them, how do you get folks on board? But I want to go back to this uh, point we were talking about where, you know, you didn't really know what this was all about, or did you have the background to, to enter this field? So how did you go from where you started to, you know, working a, at the Savory Institute? Um, how did I get here? <laughs> um, so at the FDA, I was, you know, I, I was doing my thing, but it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really working. I knew I had to find something different. Um, in my spare time, just out of um, boredom, I created a, a charity run series with some friends of mine. So we started this charity run and, you know, that really took off and it became not just a, a local thing in DC where I was living at the time, but it became a national thing. And then it became a global thing. Um, and that basically gave me the opportunity to, to leave my FDA position and jump full time into the nonprofit space. And so I led that organization for a number of years, um, you know, as chief operating officer. And what that did is it allowed me to really like dive into an entirely new world that I knew nothing about and, you know, really hone my skills on things like, you know, marketing and operations and, you know, web development and just like diving into the areas that I was interested in. And I was like, Oh yeah, I've, I've got a creative side on it. Let's, let's dabble in the graphic design sort of stuff. And I think what that's done is it's taken this skill set that I started as a base with, which was my biomedical engineering. And then from there, I kind of built on top of it with other skill sets that I'm interested in. Um, and, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with any of that, but it's, it's what I was interested in. And so I just started exploring and getting better at things. And then I, when I learned about the Savory Institute, I was living in Denver. I'm still living in Denver at the time. And I realized that Savory Institute was just, you know, 30 minutes up the road in Boulder. And I was just like, oh, wow, there's a, I need to, I need to make this happen. And I don't know how, um, but they were hiring a, a director of development. And so, you know, they needed someone with fundraising experience. And I was like, well, I've, I've been in the nonprofit space for X number of years now. And by the way, I can come about things with my, you know, clinical background from biomedical engineering, and I can help review the peer reviewed literature and help interpret that because I, you know, have been working in the marketing space. So I can help, you know, convey these complex ideas of land regeneration and carbon sequestration and translate that to a lay audience. And so I was like, I've got this diverse skill set. Um, and it, it worked. And, you know, lo and behold, they accepted me and I, you know, have been ever so grateful for it. Yeah. And talking to you, the handful of times that we have, you know, your, your background in science and facts and logic and, and rationale is obvious. And in your personal nature, your ability to communicate. And, and I watched your Ted talk and, and just the ability to storytell and to, and to connect with people in, in such a way that these, these facts and these, the science actually lands with people in their hearts, which is where it needs to go if people are going to motivate to change and, and do something different. So I think you do have this really great combination of skills that, that does fit the bill. So obviously Savory saw it too. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of people think that you need to, we live in this society where we think we need to be these like ultra specialists in a certain area. And it's like, you, you pick your lane and you become the very best at everything. It's like, I, I, I don't believe in that. I, I think we need more generalists in the world um, because, you know, when you look, 
when you look in nature, for example, and you look at a forest, you look at the very edge of a forest where it meets a pasture, you know, that edge of the forest is where you see the greatest abundance of life. There's the greatest diversity of species because there's the greatest amount of ecological niches that are being created in the edge of where two ecosystems meet. And so um, from an ecosystem perspective, that's called the edge effect. And I think the same is true in terms of skill sets of people, you know, like when I have a conversation with another person in ag, we're both talking the same language. We're kind of reiterating the same ideas back and forth. I mean, that's an overgeneralization. But when I have a conversation with someone who's an entirely different ball game, all the, you know, like new synapses are firing and you get all these sparks of new ideas because something I said resonates with this background that you have over here, which then makes me think of something else and like new ideas and opportunities blossom. And I think when you're a generalist and you have experience in a diverse array of backgrounds and, and interests, it allows you to see things differently that like an ultra specialist might, you know, be too mired in, in their field to really see. Amen to all of that. It's one of the impetus for this podcast as a whole is that I truly believe we are designed to just continuously evolve and we don't have a top end for the things that we're capable of or the, or the uh, things that we can be good at. And that this ability to, to be on a path and to then go and trail break a different direction. And, and mm -hmm. then what does it take to, to believe you can do it? And then the steps to accomplish it. And, um, and I, I, I fully believe in, in all of that. So uh, I did not realize that was your perspective, but I'm, I'm <laughs> even more glad I had to join the show. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's a belief that a lot of us share, but a lot of folks don't, right? A lot of folks believe that, you know, the way they're doing it and have done it is the way and, and why bother changing or it's not worth changing. And I, in many ways, I think that's a, a lot of what you're up against in terms of helping folks to, to shift gears and to change the way they're managing their land. So, so what, what do you come up against in terms of the common resistance or the, the blockers for people? Well, from Savory Institute's perspective, you know, when we're dealing with farmers and ranchers, you know, you can't just go and knock on someone's door and be like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, the way you've been doing things your whole life and the way that your dad did things his whole life and that like his parents did their whole life, like you guys are all wrong. Yeah, and so the, here, take, take my <laughs> new thing and come to, to my course and, and come do that. Like that doesn't work. Um, and why would anyone listen to that? Um, and so you need to approach things in a, in a very different perspective if you're going to, to bring about drastic change. Um, and when you look at, you know, so um, Everett Rogers, he's got this diffusion of innovations theory. It's a, it's a U-shaped curve that kind of shows whenever there's a new technology or a new concept, something innovative, whenever it's adopted, there's different groups of people. And that first group of people is the, the innovators. And then uh, a couple percentage points after that is the early adopters. And then there's the, when you get into the bulk of the people, the main part of the U-shaped curve, you've got the, the um, early majority and the late majority, and then you've got the laggards, which is like the last 16%. A lot of people, like when they're talking about a new concept, they're trying to convince the laggards over here on the far end. And so like, if you think about it in terms of 
smartphone adoption. If we go back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, whenever the smartphone came out, there were the people that were the first ones in line at the Apple store to get this fancy new thing. And everyone was like, no, other people were like, you're ridiculous to wait overnight for that. I'm not going to do it. And then other people were like, I'm going to have my flip phone till I die. And there's still a few of those out there. Your flip phone. Yeah, there you go. So you're part of that 16%. You're laggard right there uh, of, of the innovation. But there's the people that are going to get super excited because it clicks for them, either because they go against the grain and what they believe in, or you know they, they see what it is you're talking about because it's been presented in a way. I think when change is going to happen, focus on the early adopters and the innovators, like what appeals to them. And, you know, from Savory's perspective, there's a lot of farmers and ranchers out there that are interested in finding something different because the traditional paradigm, the the conventional industrial agricultural approach doesn't work for them, either because they are environmentally minded and they see what is happening to their land. And they're like, no, I need to care for this planet and do something better. Or maybe they're a farmer or a rancher who like are, they're existing on razor thin margins. You know, they like the profits are getting less and less each year because, you know, the productivity of the land is getting worse and worse. And so they kind of see the writing on the wall that something has to change. So from that perspective, we don't go knocking on their door. They come knocking on our door saying, hey, we've seen you out at conferences and TED Talks and, you know, webinars and whatnot. We, we've heard that there's something different, that there's an alternate path. I'd like to learn more about it. And from our perspective, it's welcoming them with open arms and saying, absolutely, what would you like to learn? And not having any judgment on where they are, or where they've come from, or, or things that they still hold near and dear to their hearts. Like maybe they're interested in just, you know, dipping their toes in the water. And that's okay, because even if they're just dipping their toes, that's the first step on a journey. And you never know what that's going to become years down the road, but you can't force someone down a path that they don't want to go. You need to just show them that other paths exist, perhaps show examples of other people that are on those paths that may resonate with them. So, you know, from my perspective at Savory Institute, I I run all of our fundraising, but our, our communications and marketing. So a big piece of my job is storytelling because, you know, I can hammer people with facts and statistics and logic all day, which is like my engineering background, but that doesn't really convince people to change. What convinces people to change is stories of people whose livelihoods have been impacted and how the profitability of their farm has changed and how the beauty of their land and the connection to their family and all these sorts of pieces, like that's what resonates with people. And so you gotta like take the the logic oriented side of things and really move it down to the heart space of, of the storytelling. And when you do that, people really change. And then in terms of that, you know, diffusion of innovation curve, you know, as you do that with the, the innovators and the early adopters, eventually uh, enough momentum is going to build with those people that it's going to start to become more accessible and the markets are going to shift and, you know, the, the cultural norms are going to change so that the large majority of people, it will make sense for them to jump on board as well. And then just ignore the laggards. They'll, you know, if they join great, if they never do, that's fine. Yeah. That, that concept of, of meeting people where they're at and then inspiring them to, to move their feet to a new place or direction, I think is really important because, you know, if you can inspire people to, to sort of 
do it intrinsically, then, you know, then you have true change and you have change that will be lasting versus people doing what you want them to do, but for Mm -hmm. reasons you're going to regret later. Well, from Savory's perspective, when we deal with, you know, like changing how you graze your animals, I mean, you can force someone, you know, through like a government program or, and, uh, you know, the, the, the buyer, you know, says, you know, these are the standards you must meet. Like you can force change, but that doesn't mean that that change is going to last forever. You know, it's like, it's like putting a gun to someone's head and saying, do this and they'll do it. But as soon as you take the gun away, like they're going to go back to doing what they want to do. And so you can't force people to change. You need to like have that paradigm shift. You need to allow them to see the world differently Um, because when they see the world differently, then they're going to make decisions differently. And that's like the big part for us is, you know, when someone comes to us to to learn about holistic planned grazing, that's like the, the methodology that most people are interested in that we teach. You know, they come to this like nine day intensive course and they think it's going to all be about grazing. In reality, it's like two or three days is about grazing. But the first couple days, it's all about, you know, com- managing complexity and like, what do you want your life to be? What's your, what, what's your ideal future? What does your land look like? What are your dynamics with your family? You know, and then like developing this concept of your holistic context, which is like the North star that you're aiming for at all times. And it's, it's this thing that people aren't expecting, but we go through this process and these exercises and what it does is it allows them to, to truly get a sense for what they want in life. And then, you know, we show them some pieces of, you know, this is how the ecosystem works. Some, you know, ecosystem processes about water cycles and nutrient cycling and whatnot. And, you know, that foundational information along with the deeper inner exploration really allows for this transformation that we see in folks. And like, you see these light bulb moments where, you know, they expect to come in learning about grazing. And like, I kind of consider that like the, the carrot that we dangle, like, come on. Yeah. Learn the thing. You can be more profitable at ranching. And then they come through and they see the world in an entirely different perspective. And because they see it differently, they're going to walk through that world much differently. Yeah. The same thing happens in the coaching and the training that I do with folks where it, it, it unlocks, we start somewhere. And then through this process of inquiry and, you know, the relationship, the, the whole sort of landscape opens up for them. And, and then they can contextualize, you know, what they wanted at the start and then where it fits in with all these other things that were maybe under the surface or related. Yeah. Uh, It's fascinating. So, so when you, when you're with that, when those folks in, in that space, what are the things that come up for people that, their fears or their worries, their stresses around turning the corner and, and, and making a new direction with their, with their path. Well, you know, I think for us specifically in agriculture, there's a lot of tradition at play. Um, and when you are um, in a rural community, you don't have the density of people and, you know, that type of, there's not as many, options in terms of your community, you know, your community is your community. And when you live in rural areas, your community is very much your lifeline because, you know, you can't just go, you know, all the time, you know, five minutes down to the grocery store to pick up whatever you need or down to home Depot to get whatever, like you rely on borrowing from neighbors and trading things and helping people out. And, you know, that is, you know, your lifeblood is your community. And so to change 
as the lone individual within a community, there's often, you know, that tall poppy syndrome where, you know, the poppy that sticks its head up is the poppy that's going to get chopped off so that everything can be nice and even. And so people are, are scared to, to, to really stick their neck out. Um, but what we've really tried to do to address that is um, creating a global network where people might not have the direct in-person community. I mean, we would love it um, when we get to the point that, you know, everyone's neighbor is, you know, practicing holistic management and doing things in a regenerative manner, but, you know, we still have a ways to go. But what we do have is a global network of people that are all doing this. So while someone may feel like an island, at least now we've shown them that they're part of an archipelago, um, you know, that there are all kinds of other islands and they're all doing it the same way who you can share and learn from and, you know, get support from. And so, you know, we've done that and it's worked beautifully. So we've got this global network of about 50 learning hubs that are in all different corners of the globe. And they're all doing things a little bit differently because, you know, the local cultures and climate and, and soil type and markets and policies, you know, everything's a little different. So, you know, no two savory hubs look the same, but I think that's, you know, some of the beauty of it is we've got these diversity of, of backgrounds and approaches uh, and ways in which people, you know, are, are implementing this into real life. Makes total sense. And, and I wanted to ask a little bit more about some of the, the work that you guys are doing. So whether it's at the hubs or whether it's, you know, at the home base in, in Boulder, you know, when I was looking at the website, there looks like there's things like there's tools, there's curriculum, there's there's seemingly a, a whole host of resources for folks who are interested. And, and you mm -hmm. talked about the the nine day experience, but when you you know have, could you speak a little bit more about what those tools or curriculum might be too? Yeah, so you know we've got different. Um learning resources for folks, depending on who they are and what they're interested in and how deep they want to go. So, you know, Alan Savory, who's our founder uh, of the Savory Institute, um, he wrote uh, the book holistic management. And so we, there's the textbook and there's the, the handbook, which is kind of the how to. So we've got those that are available. If someone wants to do just like some self-study and exploration and, and dive in, we've got online courses. If people want to, um, you know, go a little bit deeper on the fundamentals and developing their holistic context and learning about the ecological, um, processes. Um, and so we've got that, but then for the more in-depth, hands-on, we have our savory hubs, which are those learning sites around the world. You know, I said, we've got about 50 of them. So depending on where someone is, we've got resources that can meet them where they are because we know that not everyone is ready to go to, you know, a weekend course or a nine day intensive, you know, that's a lot to ask, you know, they might just be interested in like, Oh, I, I want to, I just want an ebook that I want to scroll through and, and read a little bit. It's like, okay, we've got that. We've got a hardback book. If you want to dive a little bit more, we've got online courses, we've got in-person. So um, for us, it's not that like, this is the steps you need to take exactly. Um, but rather here's a host of offerings that all kind of go into different levels of depth, depending on where you are and, and, you know, how far you want to go with it. Great. And I know that you guys have a, a lofty, but hopefully achievable goal of transitioning, uh, I don't know how many billions of, of acres of land uh, by 2025. Is that right? Yeah. So that this is, and 
it's our big, hairy, audacious goal. It's our BHAG. And so our, our BHAG is we want to influence management on a billion hectares of land by 2025. And that's a big, audacious goal because, you know, globally, there's 5 billion hectares of grasslands. So we're going after 20% of that or a fifth. Um, and, you know, that's a lot. Um, but I think from our perspective, the, the BHAG is there to, to remind us that, the issues that we're facing in terms of desertification and climate change and food sovereignty and water, you know, all of these things are big, massive, massive, massive global issues and small incremental change isn't going to get us where we need to go in time. So for us having that really, really lofty BHAG is kind of a, a constant reminder that even though Savory Institute for a small staff of 12, you know, here in the U S has, you know, affected, you know, through this global network around like 35 million acres, um, or, you know, probably like 15 million hectares. We know that we still have a ton of work to do. And so we shouldn't rest on our laurels of all the wonderful impact we've you know done so far, you know, like, there are future generations. I've got a six month old daughter and I need to leave a planet for her that hopefully has productive soils where, you know, that is actively photosynthesizing and, you know, climate change is not a massive issue and there's access to water and food. And like, I want to leave her that type of planet and her kids and their kids and their kids. And so if we want to get to that point, like the clock is ticking and we need to do a lot better and a lot quick, a, a lot quicker makes total sense. So, you know, one of the things that folks always come up against, I think, when they're trying to, to change for making a better environment is, you know, where do I start? And, and obviously there's, there's some truth to starting within your community and starting small on these little changes. But I think you bring up a good point about how, you know, a lot of the, the change can and maybe needs to happen on a bigger scale. And, and so if you're not a, a, a large landowner, Right. And, you know, what can you do to make some some informed choices to change, you know, where you've put your dollars, where you put your focus and your energy? I believe that you guys at Savory are also focused a little bit on that side, too. Right. Yeah. So we work uh, on the farmer and rancher side of things, but we also work on the market side of things, working with brands that are interested in getting into regenerative agriculture. Because when you're working with a brand like Timberland Boots, for example, you know, they've got lots of leather that they, they put on their boots, but where does that leather come from? Well, they've signed on to our land to market program. And now you can go buy leather boots that have leather that comes from 100% verified regenerating ranches that we've gone out and we've measured the outcomes on the land and we've trend lined those and it's the health of the land is increasing over time. Um, and so that's something that we're doing, not just in the apparel side of things with the outdoor industry, we're also doing it in high fashion with luxury brands. We're doing it in the food space, whether that's meat or dairy or cashmere, we've got our first crop products. We just had a, a new hemp partner come on board and milk and eggs and, you know, all this sort of stuff. It's all agriculture. It's all how we manage our land. So, you know, we're training the farmers, we're helping the brands get in touch with that supply. But, you know, if you look at that, there's also a third component, a third leg of that stool. And I would say that's the consumer. And so that's all of us, every single one of us is a consumer. You know, we vote with our dollar three times a day for 
you know, food that comes either from land degrading industrial agriculture or land regenerating agriculture. And so the choice is ours of what we want to see. And when we vote with our dollars in favor of that, that sends the signals back to the marketplace of this is where I'm willing to put my money. This is what I want to see more of. And the market listens, the farmers listen. And if they know there is a market for regenerative ag, more people, you know, we talked about that theory of innovation curve, more people from the bulk of the middle are going to move over towards the regenerative side because, because the dollars and cents are going to make sense for them. And so every single one of us, even though, you know, I don't manage land, I mean, I've got, you know, like a quarter of an acre, um, but you know, I've got a garden, that's about it. Um, but what we can do is we can send the right signals. And when each of us starts sending the right signals, that might not seem like a lot, you know, like, well, I'm just one person, you know, one vote doesn't count. Well, every single person is saying that, but every single one of us is, is adding up to more and more momentum. And eventually we reach a tipping point. And when you reach that tipping point, massive change can happen. And, you know, that massive change eventually will come from the government side of things where, you know, policy and incentives, you know, in terms of funding for farmers, like that will all come eventually, but government policy doesn't lead, it follows. And it follows based on the individual actions of each of us. So each of us has a critically important role, even if it's a small one, and that's to align our values with our purchasing behavior and to speak up whenever there's an opportunity to speak up. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's critically important for all of us to, to try to align those values and and, you know, buy things that, um, you know, are aligned with regenerative agriculture, if that's something that resonates with you, or maybe it's, you know, fair trade, or maybe it is organic or, you know, whatever it may be, align your values with where you spend your money, because I think that's one of the most important things. And that's not to say that corporations get a free pass, that they're just doing what we are asking them to do. You know, that is part of the marketing playbook of, you know, big tobacco is they tried to pass the buck and blame the consumer. And they were just saying, well, consumers want cigarettes. So we're giving them cigarettes, big oil and, you know, fossil fuel industry is trying to do that now and say, well, it's consumers want, you know, fossil fuels. So we're giving them fossil fuels and ag does the same thing. Um, but both of us have a responsibility, each of us as a consumer to send those signals, but then the corporations have a responsibility as well to make big change where they can, because they absolutely can. Um, and you know, a lot of them are, I mean, not a lot, some of them are starting to, you know, if you go and look at, uh, Google search trends, you can see how different, uh, terms have been searched in popularity, you know, over the years, regenerative agriculture has just been skyrocketing over the last couple of years. It's going going gangbusters. And like, that's so amazing to see from my perspective. Cause it's like, okay, people are starting to get it. There's starting to be documentaries on Netflix. Like there's starting, like there's products that you can go buy at whole foods and, you know, natural grocers and REI and all this stuff. And I'm like, yes, it's happening. Now let's just keep stewarding that and say, okay, along the way. And you know, those, those of you that want to come join in on this journey and break trail over onto this regenerative side of thing where we are, like we will welcome you with open arms because you've probably got a skill set. You know, maybe you're a financier and you've got ideas on capitalism and how we can change those markets. Or maybe you're an engineer who can come and help translate complex science to, to a lay audience. Like everyone has something they can 
can give and, and offer. Um, and I think that's the beauty of where all this is going. Yeah. And, and in my very naive uh, understanding of, of regenerative agriculture, you know, it, it feels like it's, it's pretty inclusive in the sense where it's like, I don't really see how anybody loses if we go that route, right? You know, it's better for the environment. It's better. We get better food products, water quality, soil depth Mm -hmm. and density and health. We get, uh, you know, more profits. We get stronger communities. So, so absolutely. I I think that the work that you are doing that Savory Institute is doing and that all the other players in the space are doing is, is super needed. It is fantastic to hear how much it is being spoken about uh even just in the last four or five years that i've been you know a micro associated with it so so look i want to thank you for for your time today for the work you're doing and um if folks want to find a little bit more out uh is savory institute website the best approach or is there some other path that they should look for yeah check us out uh savory.global is the website um if you go to savory.global slash newsletter you can subscribe to our newsletter there's also an archive there of all of our previous ones so you can see all the things happening around our network you know there's all kinds of videos and science and stories you know there's there's all sorts of stuff there. So, and we're, we're on all the major social channels, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all that jazz. We're around. I'm managing it. I'll, I'll be there. Perfect. Well, again, thanks for your time and all the best and have a fantastic summer with that new little baby of yours. <laughs> Appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks so right. much, man. Take care.